Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome back to Transformation Change Radio. So excited to be partnering and co-hosting with Dr. Becky Martinez. I'm Kathy O'Bear with Center for Transformation and Change, and we could not be more excited. We'll both kind of welcome Dr. Carmen Rivera, Assistant Vice President for Student Affairs at Colorado State University. And we're going to keep digging into class and classism and strategies dismantle. We're doing many months of this. So thank you all for joining. And Carmen, dear friend, we know each other from Colorado, Faculty Social Justice Training Institute. You don't let me get away with nothing. And I'm so grateful <laughs> for that. So good. Thank you so much for joining. Yes, thank you for being here, Carmen. Um, Kathy and I have been talking for two sessions, and so now to have a, a third person here is exciting and awesome, so that it's just not from our pers- perspective and lens. Um, and so I just uh, I just want to give a, a welcome to you in this triad um, of learning and connecting um, through the lens of class and classism and all things class and dot, dot, dot. Um, and so if you could introduce yourself a little bit and then tell us a little bit about your class story. Sure, absolutely. Um, it's super fun to be here with y'all in this environment. I'm super excited to have the conversation um, and carry on what often sometimes happens, you know, over a meal or in a car um, with these two in various ways at conferences, right, where we are like, hey, I wonder, have you thought about, you know, these things? And so just happy to be here in this conversation. Um, my name is Carmen Rivera. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And um, yeah, I do lots of things. I work at Colorado State. I am a mom of two tornadoes, I lovingly call them, a six-year-old and a 10-year-old tornado. I'm married to a very um, life of the party kind of wife. <laughs> I say that sarcastically, so. um, <laughs> introvert. Um, yeah, and so um, my class journey, I think all of those things relate in some ways, right? And so I'll start off kind of just the early years. I think I kind of have three eras of my class story, um, kind of my origin story, if you will, for all the Marvel fans out there, um, is, that I started off in a pretty homogenous community where it seemed like everyone around me was um, poor and working class, just like I was, right? Um, Grew up in Northern New Mexico and lots of folks were in a similar boat as me. Um, Kind of lived this semi-rural life. My grandparents lived in like super rural Northern New Mexico and I lived less rurally, but really we're in that place of like kind of having to figure out finances all the time in my family of origin. But the thing that I think is important about that is that 
Um, we never, I don't know, felt like we were poor, right? Like there was a big emphasis on like, just because we don't have a lot doesn't mean you don't have to take care of it, right? There was a lot of like, take pride in what we do have kinds of things. And so, um, yeah, we couldn't do lots of things that even some of my friends in school could do, like play all the sports or do all the things all the time. Um, but it didn't really ever come from kind of a deficit perspective. I think it was always framed as like, we don't have much, but we're going to be fine kind of frame framing. Um, so you could tell, like there were markers that I would look at with in other kids and other families that would, that would kind of give me the indicator that we were not in the same kind of middle class or have more wealth than other things. And so like people who would go to restaurants for birthdays or people who would get like, um, birthday cakes that were not made by your mom, you know, like at, at your birthdays and stuff like that, those kinds of things. I remember things like, um, I think I was putting this on somebody's social media, maybe it was yours, Becky, that like stovetop seemed like something that like rich people ate. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, know, I think I, you know, I learned differently, but anyway, like it was just all these like weird little markers that would give me like social markers, social cues that, we didn't have as much because we didn't ever eat all of those things. We always had like meat and potatoes and tortillas at home. And that was it. Um, also things like brown paper bags for school lunches. We didn't have that. We would take it in whatever bag we had, not these little like perfect square paper bags. It was strange. Or we'd eat at lunch at school because it was free. Um, and then kind of moving out of the like early years, I get into like my more middle years and that's like, um, borrowing from one to pay the other, that's kind of the vibe. So um, college and even in my early career years, it was a lot of um, borrowed money. And so um, spent a lot of time um, in college trying to keep up with the social life that was college. Um, so I got, you know, the credit card people on the plaza, the oval, the quad, the square, wherever you are, um, if that sounds familiar, like the, hey, come get this free t-shirt for a credit card. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Like I need a t-shirt for a credit card. So I got a lot of those kinds of things and <clears throat> ended up using those credit cards to help me, um, manage kind of the social demands and sometimes the more academic or scholarly demands of school. So like, you know, getting books and all those kinds of things. And so really just spent a lot of time like that in, in college. I was joking the other day that I think I'm still paying off some Doc Martens that I bought in like 1999. <laughs> I said that thing about the purple shoes. I had these purple shoes and I swear I'm still paying for them. Totally. Right. Totally. Or a trip to, you know, wherever with my friends for the weekend or something. So, um, and then that really carried on into my first kind of first good number of years in, in higher ed, working in student affairs and student affairs adjacent work. So I worked with access programs and <clears throat> back in the day, I was just talking to my colleague and we worked at the same time. Um, our starting salary was $25,000 a year. And I remember having somebody say, oh yeah, I have way more months than I do have check. And I was like, Oh my God, that's totally like the way it is for me. Um, I had more months than I did have check. And so it was just a really tough, tough time. In some ways it was harder than an undergrad. Um, because 
it felt like there was just, I don't know, more support or more structure Mm -hmm. for me to be able to find ways to get like a free meal here or there, or, you know, lots of things like that. But when I was just like gain quote, gainfully employed, um, it it took a a lot harder. So I would use credit cards to pay bills. I would use credit cards to do stuff like, like the things that you shouldn't on the regularly be paying credit cards used to be use credit cards to be paying unless you're paying the credit card off in full, right? Like those kinds of things. So I had really no financial literacy. I had no financial like understanding of money, none of that stuff. And I still would say that I'm really novice at, at that rely on a lot of other leadership. In fact, in my first job, I remember getting the benefits package and people asking me, okay, you need to sign up for benefits. And I was like, uh, I have no idea what that means. Nobody in my life, like my parents had not had real jobs that had, had jobs that had real significant benefits. Right. And so, or ones at least that they would have been able to talk to me so I could have a framing. So I was asking people like, what kind of retirement do I get? I don't know. I have no idea. Um, I don't know how much medical insurance to get those kinds of things. And so I think that that was really marked by my early career. And so now we're kind of like in that um, middle-class suburban domestic bliss life category stage era of my life where, you know, we have two incomes that are, um, healthy. We have enough to make our, you know, monthly like obligations and save some money and still have money to be able to, you know, travel or go out or buy like, um, luxuries. Right. So, um, and even what I think are luxuries, I think are still rooted in my class story Mm -hmm. (laughs) of origin. (laughs) And so, those kinds of things. Um, I still feel like this is new to me, um, probably despite being here for maybe, I don't know, maybe five to 10 years of less struggle. Um, And in the last maybe three years, significantly less struggles. And so, um, which is strange when like people start to see like, oh, you have a PhD or now I have this title to think that somebody would still be figuring out finances and struggling financially. But finally, I'm at this place now where I'm not in a constant state of borrowing and repaying that kind of um, cycle. But um, yeah, so it it still feels new, right? I'm still figuring out what that means and how it shows up for me, like on a regular basis. Mm. Oh, there's so much there. Mm. Uh, um, And so much that I can relate to. Like I was like, oh, what's luxury now? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, what that means and how that plays out, particularly as, um, you have these growing people in your life, like, huh, is luxury for us, the like standard for them. Mm. Right. Totally. Um, you know, I see that often with, I mean, Patrick had a different struggle cause he's 31. Um, but like Jacob, <laughs> the standard is like, we can go and, you know, I can go th- through, even if like, I'm going and grabbing a burger to in and out, like that's affordable and that's just the norm, um, or going to get the pizza that, you know, is delicious and expensive and it's not little Caesars or pizza hut for like five or six bucks. Uh, cause he doesn't eat that. Right. <laughs> he like wants a particular kind. And so that for me is deemed luxury, but for him, that's just the way it is. Totally. 
I mean, we're going on a, uh, our first, like, well, not first. Well, we're, we're taking a road trip for spring break and we had taken a road trip last summer, right? All of the travel restrictions and everything just made people get in their cars. And that's what we did. So we got in our cars last summer and took a road trip. And that was, we stayed in a couple of motels, um, along the way. Cause we were in parts of the country that didn't have hotels. And so, um, we were just talking about the spring break trip and the little one or smaller, our younger son says, Oh, um, and can we please stay in a hotel this time? Those motels. I was like, six years old, six Aww. years old. And I was like, man, I wish you would say something about a motel. Now, of course, we're like going to try to find a motel to, to stay into like <laughs> set him right. Cause like, who do you, who do you think you are out here? Um, but yeah, it's like what they think is normal or standard was something I hadn't even done till I was a teenager or an adult. My guess is many listeners can relate to you, Carmen, especially if they're working in K-12, higher ed, and have had uh, the opportunity to move into positions of leadership where financially there's a more fair wage. Um, so just really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability. And we can go many places. I have a place to go, Becky. I don't know where you want to go. Go ahead. Well, I know that you've worked with um, access organizations. So I'm, I'm actually curious, what are ways that you've personally, you've seen higher ed or other K-12 organizations really try to name and dismantle classism and not from that kind of let's help these poor people. Cause I know that's not who you are, but just kind of have, what have you seen that, and what have you done? Yeah. I mean, I, I have to say like, you know, I started my career in access programs that were focused on, low-income, first-generation college-going students, right? And so all these pre-college programs, and it took me a long time to unlearn the helping Mm. um, framework, right? Um, And so it was, at the time, it seemed like folks were really into, like, let's help the student, let's help these um, poor folks get into college. And so it was really from that framework. And I, I don't say that as, like, an overt like criticism, just like it was terrible, but that that work also evolved over the course of time, right? And so even during the uh, almost 15 years that I was in that um, functional area in higher ed, so I worked both in the higher ed setting as well as like the K-12 setting, the higher high, high school setting. And so um, I think that there's been a lot of structural things like access programs, trio programs, those kinds of things, gear up, all those like, you know, either presidential initiatives or federal government initiatives or state funded, institutionally funded mechanisms to try to um, create access for for students to come to college um, who otherwise the only barrier is the financial need, right? We see lots of stories like that at, you know, the prestigious Ivy schools that if you make under a certain amount of money, you get free tuition. So I think that those are all great. I'm not, I'm not, I think we should keep them. Yes, keep them. And what I think also happens though, is that once the students arrive, they have a, they have an experience that was similar to mine in that, like, how do we then maintain a life in this institution that is not designed to serve students 
like me, right? So that's why you see a lot of other things popping up now too, not just what, not the singular reason, but there's lots of reasons as to why you see things like food pantries and like emergency loans and all these other things that people are, are institutions are trying to, to support students who have um, food insecurity, housing insecurity, um, all kinds of things that would put them in emergency situations, right? So a lot of students who are, you know, poor working class, low income students come to college, they're not just working for themselves. They're often, often working, making money, sending it home, right? Whereas other students come to school and they're like have a safety net and their parents or family members are supporting them and sending them money. So the finances, the flow of finances goes the opposite direction. And so I think that the, I've really been happy to see the evolution move from like a really individualized kind of approach, which was our access programs is like, if you have, they, they actually call them like back in the day would call them diamonds in the rough kind of idea, right? That if you are a shining exceptional example of, you know, excellence, then you should deserve you deserve to go to college, like in in a very individualistic frame. Um, And we're seeing lots of conversations around student success about being a student ready college versus a college ready student. Those Mm -hmm. kinds of things are really important shifts that I think will help continue to help evolve the conversation on how we can make institutions of higher ed in specific, less classist, but there's even things like, okay, so like an example, um, at the beginning of every school year, you get a school list for the, you know, my kids in elementary school, here's what you have to buy. Here are the supplies that you have to bring. It's like, you know, all the things that should already be provided for, for our, our teachers, not just our students, but for the teachers. And so I went to the, you know, it was the open house. This was the before times before when we could just breathe freely and collect freely um, without distancing and all that stuff. But the, I talked to the assistant principal. I was like, Hey, so what happens if a student doesn't like, they can't afford their supplies. And he was like, Oh yeah, don't worry about it. Um, we have plenty of stuff here. And I was like, Oh, I'm not asking for myself. I'm literally, I can afford to buy our student, our kids stuff. I'm just asking like, there's nothing on the website. There's nothing that got sent to us that says, if you can't afford these click here and we can talk to you a little bit more about it. Or there's nothing on there that says, if you could sponsor a student, like if you have the means to help with somebody else, could you do right? There was no indication of what a person could do if they can't afford it. And so those are some of the little, like little ways that you, I don't see our, my school district doing things that would help it make it easier, less stigmatized, um, more accessible, and just even little things like the supply list, right, at the beginning of the school. So did they change when you offered very clear, strategic, easy shifts? Did they change? I've not seen the change yet. So this was in 2019 when I asked the question. (laughs) So... I mean, to to their credit, I think that if I followed up again, they would probably do something differently. Um, But again, that's going to be my building in my school, right, where my kids go to school. It's not going to be like a district-wide approach, right? Again, those are some of the things that I think that people do kind of at the like provincial level, the local level, the whatever like 
area you try to do things that then aren't really structural. They don't really provide long-term sustainable um, options for people to be able to engage, right? Yeah. I appreciate the kind of the conversation around like the, the tangible money pieces um, and resources at, um, at the various inst- kind of institutions you talked about, whether that's on campus or, you know, at the elementary school. Um, I'm curious also around how does class and classism show up in addition to those pieces? Because oftentimes we, we are in the space of like economic capital or financial capital or the tangibles that, um, or at least the perceived tangibles that can um, you know, define folks' classes, right? Or their need or their, they don't need. Um, and oftentimes it's the below the surface stuff, right? Of how this shows up. So what are some ways that you see it showing up, whether that is on campus or um, at the kids' school or just kind of how you do your daily? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think those are the those are the things that we sometimes explain away. Um, either it's like, oh, that's just a lack of experience, or oh, it's you know, you're moving into this field from this field, that kind of stuff. But I often talk about being a first gen low income student, and that was that was my identity as a well, that is my identity as a student, right? Um, and then it also carries on over to being a professional, I think, in lots of ways. So one example for me of the below the surface kind of thing is that I remember going, uh, being in saying, like having my boss tell me, all right, we're going to go. We have professional development funding this year and we're going to go to um, a professional association conference. Right. So professional development opportunity. This is exciting. I had zero idea about what that meant. I had in all of the ways I didn't know, did I have to pay for it? So that's like kind of a overt financial thing. But the other things that showed up were, um, I don't know what to wear. I don't know, like, do I take my own stuff? Like obviously my clothes, but do I have to take my own work bag? Do I take my own supplies? Do I take, I had no context for what that meant. Um, and I see that a lot too, cause you know, I co-lead a master's program and I, when we talk about opportunities like um, studying abroad or taking on a practicum experience or serving on a journal board, that students often who come from um, the like lower income backgrounds, they don't often sign up for those. They don't often, they're not the first to show up to um, sign up because I think if there's not clarity on whether there's something that is like, going to be a charge. I think there's like an automatic, like I'm opting out of that experience or there's no understanding of what this could potentially set them up for in the future in terms of potential benefits for the future. I think that there's just a lack of that kind of cultural understanding of what those things can mean. Right. It's like, yeah, I don't want to go on a trip. Well, it's more than just a trip, right? It's more than just a trip. Um, and we've, we've talked with the, um, like student engagement office on campus around how there's such a low um, engagement with students in things like alternative spring breaks Mm -hmm. or study abroad, even those kinds of experiences. And it isn't always just financial. There's just a lack of kind of a more culturally rooted understanding of what those opportunities might mean for you um, outside of that. And that they've, they're not really for me, right? Like that whole idea. 
I think some other ways that that shows up too, and, and I mean, it's still rooted in finance, but like um, the ways in which people are like, oh, it's so-and-so's birthday and um, we're going to pitch in for a, you know, big bouquet or whatever. And mind you, there's people in like in my office, for example, there are people who are all in six figure categories of income. And then there's people who have, are making like $40,000 a year for their whole family. And so like what it means for me to contribute, you know, $20 to somebody is very different than what it might mean to somebody else. Um, so I think lots of markers like that. Um, I actually, today, before I came here, went to the funeral of, uh, oh. um, like a mentor and friend and work colleague who um, she had a similar background to me um, as me when she came to college. And so when I started at work, I felt recognized immediately, Mm. right? Immediately by her, by the way we spoke, by the way um, she engaged with me, right? So there's a language piece that shows up that when I'm talking to my colleagues, there's the like very professional kind of very uh, straight posture, more, you know, firm language. But when I was talking to her, she's like, Carmen, la Carmen, what's up, orale, how's it going? A different language that showed up for us. And that's not just a cultural reference. I think that there's also some elements to what you're getting at, Becky, that are below the surface. Um, A lot of questions around, like she always carried um, her conference bags. So you know how you could, you get like a free bag at a conference. That was like her work bag. So she'd have the anchor bag or the NASA bag or the whatever bag. And I'm like, girl, I'll get you like a fancy bag. You're like a VP. And she's like, Oh, what for? And, um, before she retired, she brought, um, all of those bags to work and was like, Hey, who wants one of these bags? Everyone's like, nobody, nobody, Mary. (laughs) Um, but those are, I mean, those are like some of those, those markers that I think that I had people there to also like assure me that, oh, we're cool. We'll, we'll make it, um, do that, you know, intergenerational kinds of things. Yeah. I appreciate those, like the storytelling around that because, um, it's so much more than the money, Right. It is the sense of belonging or asking the questions, the kind of, you know, how do I fit in and what does this mean? And we don't have conversations around that. Mm-hmm. Um, one, because it's so like money spaced, but it's also like, how do we have, it's just uncomfortable. Like it can be uncomfortable. There could be some shame or guilt. Um, there could be like, I don't know how to like engage in this Um in any like competent way and not saying that we have to engage it in a competent way. Right. Um, but it's just like, like how we also know. frame competency, totally right. Frames. And like what we, what we call competence, right. Um, like Mary would study, bring Ziploc bags to like buffet mm-hmm. snack things that would have a meeting. Like, you know, there'd be bagels by the dozens and there'd be some leftover. Well, girl would bring out her Ziploc <laughs> and be like, we're going to take these back to the office. We're going to take these back to the people who are working in the office. And so like somebody might critique that. Um, but at the same time, it's like, oh, we're actually supporting people who would really appreciate it. Right. And so um, and we've already paid for it. So right. It's like uh, there's lots of ways that you can frame it. And 
oftentimes they get framed from a negative perspective. Um, and so I think like, again, yeah, what is competence? What is, what is positive? What is like, you know, maybe bending the rules a little. Sure. You probably shouldn't like, there's all these rules about how you can take food out of places or not places. Right. And so how are we doing that in a way that's humanizing for people? And as I hear you, folks in education, however, begin to question, what are these rules? Who made them? For whose benefit? And why are they here? And why not? And how rare is it to have a vice president of a major university be first-gen low-income student originally, much less a woman of color? And so how can we have, in this transition period, to have folks who grew up with more class privilege to realize how we're perpetuating classism as well as amplifying the practices and honoring those who are just being and they're like, oh, this is how we do this. <laughs> this is community. And um, we just have a couple minutes left. I wonder if, Carmen, would you mind just sharing how people might find you if they want to keep talking, if they want to ask you to come to consult or coach or train? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the best way is via email um, through my um, seerivera at gmail.com. Um, that's the best way for folks to reach out to me. Uh, I kind of run a little bit analog in a digital world. And so, um, but what I feel like I, I don't put out there in a digital um, footprint, I put out in a personal footprint. And so I'm really focused on relationship and, and being in people. So being with people. Hmm. I also think there, um, are, are you on the SJTI mm-hmm. website? I think so, Definitely but, on the SJTI website. Yep. Folks can connect, contact me there. My contact information is there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That would be www.sjti.org. All right. Take a deep breath, listeners. When we come back more with Dr. Carmen Rivera. All right. See you in a few. Welcome back. We're in this conversation with uh, Dr. Kathy O'Bear, Dr. Carmen Rivera, and myself around class and classism, and we want to continue to um, expand our dialogue. So prior, we were talking a little bit about, um, what did you call it, office collections, right? Or even like a potluck or things that you do in the office around culture. Uh, And if you could talk a little bit, Carmen, around, you know, the impact and how you see dynamics playing out um, around even the from the ask of the collection or the office to get together or that through the you know throughout the end of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think office collections is one like specific example, but there's other things like inviting people out to coffee for a meeting, mm-hmm. um, those kinds of things um, that will put a person in a particular position of having to figure out how do I navigate this, right? So in the office collections example, um, what does it mean for us to say, oh, um, we're going to send somebody gets sick and we're going to send them a, you know, bouquet of flowers at their home or um, somebody had a new baby and we're going to send them like, you know, dinner for two nights or something like that. And 
depending on not, it's not just about the salary dynamics, the salary dynamics for sure play into this, right? And so if somebody's making twice as much as another person in the office, whatever they give, that percentage is going to mean something different to that person, to each person, right? But then there's also the kind of like the politics or the social implications of whether or not a person can give, right? Um, there was a person that I worked with in a past office and they were just like, I never give to that. Never what? Never, never, never will. I love people. I like them, but I'm never going to give to people because it's just, I, I don't want it to be that if the, I can't afford something that month that somebody thinks that I'm not giving because I don't care. And so I don't want to get into the politics of that conversation. And so um, I remember thinking that that was strange at the time. I was like, what would, what, what does that even mean? I was a young professional um, and she just never gave. Um, and then as I kind of grew up and started earning more money within an org, within the organization, and I started seeing the impact of these questions and these asks, it just looked different. And I was able to see um, how do we do that? How can we do that differently? It's not that we want to um, not have people give or, or be in community around how to support people when they need something, but it's how can we do that? So in an office collection, it could be like, Hey, if I'm the leader of the organization and I make the most money, like buy a lot, right. Which is often the case. Um, is there a way for me to say and take the lead and say, Hey, I am going to buy two meals for this family. There's going to be a card. Everyone can just sign the card. If you'd like to contribute so that we can get a third meal, that's great. If not, right, so that you can normalize not giving in ways, or if there's another way, like there's the, we can do this, or we can also have somebody go mow, mow their lawn. So give of time, right? Mm-hmm. Or if you have, you know, can you, you know, make fresh tortillas to take some to somebody? Like those kinds of things that, I can, and I do. Um, (laughs) Those are ways that you can also contribute that aren't necessarily monetarily focused that you can create norms around so that folks don't have to feel like there's like a social implication for that decision. The, the office, I get invited all the time for coffee. That's fine. I can afford coffee, but when other people, you don't know that they can, if they can or not. And then you get into the situation, you both arrive at the coffee shop or the campus coffee shop or the neighborhood coffee shop. And you're like, okay, you invited me to coffee. What are we going to do here? Are you going to, are you buying me coffee? Am I buying myself coffee? Um, like what's, there's like, there's a lot of unwritten rules about what that means. Right. And so um, I like to invite my students, my grad students to coffee. I just, it feels like a better space, particularly my advisees, sometimes feels like a better space to just like check in and, you know, more human than in an office. And so I make have made it a point since forever, it feels like to say that whenever I invite a student out that I say, I would love to invite you to maybe we can have this meeting over coffee. I always buy my students coffee so we can get rid of that awkwardness and just name it ahead of time, right? Mm -hmm. So like individually, there are ways that we can make it so that we are clearly um, normalizing things. Like I'm going to pay for your coffee. And sometimes students are like, that's weird. And I'm like, no, when you get your first job and we see each other at a conference, bet you could buy me some coffee Mm -hmm. then, right? Like we kind of make it a little bit of a like exchange, right? So I don't, I'm not trying to approach it from a paternalistic kind of way as much as I am trying to normalize that we speak more overtly about expectations or thoughts when it comes to these kinds of things that are often 
unwritten rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You reminded me of other unwritten rules about how decisions are made, who gets to invite it to meetings, and just the classism involved in that. So I'm appreciating this conversation. I think some of them also invisible ways or less visible. And so I don't know if you've run into those dynamics of hierarchy, class, who makes money, who has the, what kind of degree. So those kind of structural classism that gets built into the norms and everyday expectations. I mean, I think it's definitely there. I, I don't think anybody is willing to say that that's what it is. Mm. I just don't. I mean, you know, we, I've seen people get pushed out of their positions because they don't at the like cabinet or leadership, executive leadership um, levels of education because they don't have a PhD or some other terminal degree. Right. And despite their track record and their work history and their um, contributions to the institutions. And so I don't think we would ever say that that's what's rooted there. Um, they say other things like, oh yeah, we, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, we're not pushing them out, but we're also not welcoming them mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. Right. And they would, I don't think people would say some of those things. I think another thing is that people believe that there are some levels of the institution who just need to get paid less. Mm. Um, You know, I heard a story the other day of somebody, you know, across the way, tell me that they were in a meeting and somebody said, well, entry-level professionals should have to go through the process of having a roommate and, you know, not being able to afford their own house or apartment on their own. Like it's part of the process. Mm. Hazing. Wow. Yeah. And these are from folks who are what we would name as like engaged people who are working on equity, who are, you know, trying to be inclusive leaders. You know, these are stories from those people. And so I think that they're like, without interrogation, that kind of belief is one that just perpetuates um, this like classist undertone. In this case, I would say overtone around like what a what an entry level professional should be earning or not, and like we're talking often we're talking about the difference between you know forty thousand dollars a year and forty five thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. What does five thousand dollars mean to a department? Right. Maybe a department it might mean a lot, but to an, a broader institution. A broader campus, a broader broader district, not much. So those are the things, but that makes the difference between a person having to house share and have their own apartment, right? And so um, our own place. So I think, you know, there's there's a lot to, to some of those things. Or like I've also heard in meetings, and this is with folks, I was at a table of folks who all, I was the lowest paid employee there with a closed group of people. So this is like a group that meets regularly, a leadership team. I'm the lowest paid employee there. And I still made a lot of money. I won't say a lot of money. I made medium amounts of money. Cause when I know what a lot of money is, I get really overwhelmed. I'm like, holy moly, people actually earn that much money. Um, no, they get paid that much money. I need to care- clarify mm, my language nice. around that. Um, so I had, a, I was earning a medium amount of money. Everyone around the table made more money than me. So I was like, we're literally talking about the difference between somebody having to 
um, pay one bill or not the other bill. And like, that's, that's what we're talking about with this level of money. And one person said, well, yeah, I mean, but just because a person makes more money doesn't mean that they have more money because you don't know what their bills are and you don't know what, you know, X, Y, and Z are. I'm like, a hundred percent. I know that, but that doesn't mean the difference between you having a home or not having a home. That doesn't mean the difference between you having money for groceries or not money for groceries. It might mean that your kid has to take out a student loan. It might mean that, you know, that you can't get X, Y, or Z, the luxuries that we were talking about earlier that now seem kind of the norm. So I think that that's, that's an example of how it has also shown up in these structural ways that people think that certain level of employment should get a certain remuneration. Is that the word? Remuneration. I think so. <laughs> if you whisper it, it sounds better. It, it does. That is it when you whisper it. Yeah. <laughs> that they should me, get paid more. I know. And then who is valued, whose voice is valued around the table, who gets listened to, who gets dismissed. So I, I look forward in future ones, unless you might have more, is just how does these beliefs and who's better, who's not as good gets built into then how we treat people and just get work done. You're supposed to serve us in senior leadership if you are entry level or the next, le- you know, that is your role, administrative assistance to serve. I think even in the places where folks are working on that and are not framing folks lower on the rungs of the ladder as serving those higher on the rungs on the ladder, that there's something like everyone's valuable. That's pretty Mm -hmm. common, right? You know, like Mm -hmm. I hear that in organizations that are doing some good work, everyone's important, everyone's valuable. But I think what it doesn't account for is like what that actually means for folks, right? Um, There was a, a push to have everybody get paid above a certain amount, right? So like in a facilities unit, and um, to get paid above a certain amount of money. Everyone's like, that sounds so great. This is great. This is a structural way to help alleviate some things. What ends up happening though, is that we move people's salaries up to this level. Then that disqualifies them from certain public services, which then ultimately the gap that that creates makes it that they end up making less less and have fewer resources. And so it's like, you have to not just move above a certain threshold. It's like, you have to move way above a certain threshold in order to account for some of these other supports that people have to have like supplemental help for. And so it got a, it's a very complicated, and this happens across various institution types, right? Where there's a true desire to help people have a more of a living wage. But when you really start to pull that apart, it gets a lot more complicated very fast. And then how do you then, is there, are there ways for us to create approaches, policies, structures that are not just one size fits all? Like every person must meet this salary threshold. How can we, how can we nuance that out a little bit more? How can we be a little bit more nimble with how we do those things so that each person gets the maximum benefit that they can from working in a place versus like all of the, everyone gets the exact same, that equality approach versus an equity approach. Yeah. And I, um, as I'm hearing you, a a few things that I have seen happen is um, 
one, it just gets too complex and complicated. And people are like, this takes too much time, yeah. right? Like it takes too much time to be in this. And, and those decision makers are the ones that are usually not needing to worry about their spaces of capital, um, which we see in privilege all the time, right? Like it's just, it's just too much to do this anti-racism work, right? Uh, we got so much going on and and we see that with classism all the time. So for, for leaders, particularly that are listening to this, like how do we stay in it? And like, um, and it's hard work and it's like, it's frustrating. Um, and like, it, and it's really good work. And then also like, how are we having real conversations about the numbers? Right? Which then also means some folks in those positions or those positions are gonna have to talk about their own numbers. And we, it's such a taboo to have conversation around like the numbers right, that people are like, no, because then what does that mean? If I am in a group, right, that is talking about this um, and I know that I'm the highest paid person and I know that Carmen sitting in there is the lowest paid person. <laughs> well, like in that example, in that meeting, I named, I was like, I'm gonna say out loud, I am the lowest paid person at this, in this meeting, mm -hmm. everyone sat up a little bit stiffer and these are colleagues. Like, so it's not just like, I'm saying this to strangers. And so I, I said, I feel like we have enough of a relationship for me to be able to say I'm the low, everybody already knows it. So I might as well just say it out loud. And so like, you know, for me to be able to like personalize that for me, a $5,000 raise is not going to, even though I have my expenses or whatever they are, it's not going to have a material consequence. Like it will for a $40,000 a year paid person. And so the conversation, you know, ebbed and flowed, but quickly moved away from that very specific point. Right. So I think that some of these things like are really about how can we not be deductive in our approaches and really think about how can we be expansive. So to your question around or your point around, it gets really complicated really fast, right? I think of a really good example around here in Colorado school when it snows, everyone's like, oh my God, are we going to cancel school? Which we never scan, we never cancel school, it feels like, um, at least at the university level. Uh, K through 12 sometimes have delay starts, whatever, right? Um, but this is a is a, a question of a class question around um, canceling school. Okay, so if we cancel school at the university, the people who are the lowest paid employees, often in facilities, those types of jobs are paid kind of in hourly rates often. Mm -hmm. So if they don't come to campus, they don't get paid, right? So um, leaders have been like, that's really hard on our lowest paid employees to close campus. Conversely, if we don't close campus, the lowest income students have the hardest time getting to campus mm -hmm. in snow. So it's like, ah, that is literally the definition of a dilemma, right? You have folks who are experiencing similar dynamics having two distinct needs, right? And so that's a perfect example of people just, I'm just going to put my head in the sand and we're not going to figure out, but what would it mean for us to have guaranteed income on a snow day right. for folks who already had a shift, right? 
we have all of these remote options. What could it be like for students? Now, nobody wants remote work or remote classes on a snow day. So we'll just say that that caused tremendous amount of stress and anxiety. So now when we have a snow day, it's period at the end, snow day for all for all modalities. Um, but really, how are we thinking about these these um, dilemmas in more expansive ways, right? There's a concept called multiple strategies utilitarianism. So utilitarianism, it's the good, like the most happiness for the most people, kind of an ethical framework, if you will, which is good when you hear, you kind of think about it like that, but oftentimes the people on the margins, the fringes, the people who have the most, you know, singular experience in this case, who have often multiple layers of oppression, don't get caught in that most happiness for the most people kind of idea. So if you think about a multiple strategies approach is that you would be able to think, okay, how do we get the most happiness, the most good, the most benefit, the most safety, the most security, whatever it is for the most people, but then also really be paying attention to who gets left out of that perspective and then do that too. How can we also take care of those things? How can, again, rather than a one size fits all approach, how are we, because that's a very deductive way of thinking. How are we able to be expansive in our thinking, be more creative in our thinking? Whose policy is it? Is our is it our own institutional district, you know, organizational policy? If it is, then we absolutely have the authority to change it. Is it state or federal statutes, laws? Maybe there's those are less flexible, but how do we still comply with them? But you know, those kinds of things. And then the cultural pieces, like the what you were talking about earlier, Becky, the stuff be- below the surface, in order to address them, they have to be said. So they have to be recognized, they have to be named in order for them to be addressed. And we're not skilled at doing that and we're afraid to do that. And what does it mean if we do that? Um, And that is the theme that came up in the book for everybody is like, you gotta name it, like we can't engage it unless we name it, but naming it is, right? Like your example, Carmen, like there's so such deep rooted capitalism, right? <laughs> in that, is it fair to pay somebody who's not showing up to produce money? <laughs> so facilities and custodians aren't going to be able to mow the lawn or clean the toilets, and so why should we pay them because they're not in production mode for us right now? And that's so deeply capitalism. People don't want to talk about that. No, and like the pandemic, in my opinion, just shown a big bright light on that around who who's continuing to make money at record pace while other people are struggling. So, um, yeah, don't get me started. That's a whole other <laughs> it is. episode. Might have to have you back (laughs) as someone who grew up with uh, middle professional class privilege. I'm also sitting with what will help the leaders who also grew up with class privilege care enough to make these changes and the depth of self-work around, well, they didn't pull themselves by their bootstraps or they don't deserve. And I worked hard. And, and so that might be a future conversation on our show is how do we work with folks who are still holding on to not only capitalistic ideas, but these, 
classist beliefs of who's valued, who's not. Because tell me I'm wrong. Snow days, folks who are on salary get paid, even if they're not doing anything. Precisely. So different rules for different people, capitalism. Absolutely. And I think some of that for sure could be its own exploration. But at the very least, this is one of the places where, one of the ways where representation really can matter in that, like, if you have more people in leadership who have come from these, you know, working class, poor backgrounds. And so an example, like, you know, you pluck me out of my life here and pluck me back in my home community. Much of my home community remains the same Mm -hmm. that, that I grew up in remains the same. And so it's not even like, Oh, everyone it's like me and me and all of my people came along and we're moving at the same pace it's not that i am literally an exception right and so it's so that's where i think that some of this really like you can have people at the table who have different class identities that can really help because part of what this is is like like you're on you're having to peel back all these layers right you've done a ton of work kathy around how to and continue to so i'm not you're not done um see i told you you don't look yeah (laughs) we all do around our privileged identities right that that's the expectation is that we continue to like find the ways that we're going to pull back all of these layers right and to use the overused metaphor of an onion Sometimes the layers are really thick and easy and distinguishable and you can pull that off. But if you've ever really fully peeled an onion, there's sometimes this little tiny film-like layer that I think that that is, those are the ways that sometimes we can't even understand. Like what the, like the concept of leisure, for example. The idea of leisuring is very working. I mean, it's very, you know, middle class, upper class, professional class idea. So when you ask questions like, oh, what are you going to do on your spring break? Work, fool. What do you think I'm going to do? Right? Like there's not, there's not even the way you engage the conversation. So I think it's really pulling that, that annoying layer but so that long-term relationship, long-term work, long-term, it's not just about training and knowledge building. It's really about capacity building, engaging that, moving into actions pieces. Every moment, every day. Thank you so much, Thank Dr. You. Rivera. Can you just tell people how to find you? And I think then Dr. Martinez will take us out. I won't be too specific because I like to hide. So no, I'm just um, earlier, I did say that I'm a, a bit of an analog person in a digital world. And I'll just say that again, because it's not because I don't want to be reached. It's just more that I, the way I'm reached is, is different in that email will work perfectly. So S-E-E Rivera, R-I-V-E-R-A, C Rivera at gmail.com um, is the best way there. I'm also on the SJTI website, SJTI.org. Um, you can find me there. Um, but I would love to connect with anybody who wants to chat, wants to brainstorm, wants a think partner. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Carmen, for being here. And we appreciate everybody out there listening. Um, Again, we ask you and invite you to do your work and also to pay attention to the layers and who and what's around you. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. 
You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.